0: Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, Msheet at ViaHemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com.
1: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's SleepingDogsMovie.com slash Wondery.
0: Content warning. This episode contains discussion of the brutal murder of two girls, as well as the topic of child sexual abuse materials. Listener discretion is advised.
1: The unsolved murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams have attracted a great deal of interest on the Internet. There is a sprawling online community devoted to the case and to seeking justice for Libyan Abbey. Much of the content they produce is informative and well-intentioned. Some of it isn't. But that community is one that we've become a part of just by doing journalism on this case.
0: The person we'll be speaking to in today's episode is also a part of this community. We previously released an episode in our ongoing mini-series, You Never Can't Forget, about the Burger Chef murders, featuring a commenter we called Hank. That was a great opportunity to speak about a complex case with a knowledgeable researcher. And we thought we'd do something similar with this episode.
1: So we decided to reach out to Tony Garner. Tony is someone who's been following this case for quite a while. He's a tremendously talented researcher, and we respect his well-thought-out opinions and his grasp of this complicated case. We were thrilled when he agreed to sit down with us and talk through some of the latest developments.
0: We'll be discussing everything from Tony and Kegan Klein, the father and son duo whose sources tell us are the focus of the current Delphi investigation, to Nicole Robertson, the FBI agent who wrote up the probable cause affidavit for Ron Logan's property. My name is Anya Kane,
1: And I'm Kevin Greenlee.
0: And this is The Murder Sheet, a weekly true crime podcast.
1: Anya and I connected over the Burger Chef murders, a 1978 unsolved case involving the killings of four young restaurant employees.
0: Now we're looking to track restaurant homicides. To help us understand the patterns of these crimes we created a spreadsheet of nearly a thousand eatery-related killings, the Murder Sheet. We'll be drawing on that data throughout Season 1 to give you a deep dive into undercovered crimes.
1: We're the Murder Sheet.
0: And this is The Delphi Murders, a conversation with Tony Garner.
2: wasn't like a web sleuth or an armchair detective. I didn't really follow a lot of true crime or anything like that. But what happened to Libby and Abby really grabbed me. I think if this crime just happened in the woods somewhere and if Libby hadn't captured the images of her killer, it might not have captivated me so much. The images of the bridge seemed almost like mythological crossing this bridge, almost literally from life to death. The images of this man and I've showed this pictures to friends of mine. They said, oh, it's a guy in a blue coat. But when I look at it, it's like a snapshot out of hell. It's like a a photo of, of pure evil. And it seems like the longer this case goes on being unresolved, the more you're pulled in and the more you obsess about it and think about it. So, back in the beginning, so back in the beginning, um, I didn't feel like there was much information in the media. I felt a lot of the statements from law enforcement were confusing and vague. So eventually, I ended up where I think everyone else did—looking around the social media platforms—and. I got a lot more information there. It wasn't always great information. But I'll say this, to when Murder Sheet started covering the Delphi murders, I was just really drawn uh, to the professionality, uh, the great interviews, and that's when I reached out to you guys and uh, we began talking about Delphi.
0: And we're very, very glad you... You did reach out to us, Tony, because we really appreciate your insights. I think out of the many, many people we talked to about this case, you know this case perhaps the best. I, I feel like we can go to you with any detail and, and you're going to be able to kind of put put it together and, and come up with some really interesting insights. So we're really delighted that you joined us today and we appreciate that. I guess, you know, I think we can maybe kick it off perhaps by sort of having a discussion with one another about something that we recently published which was the probable cause affidavit and search warrant for ron logan this has gotten some attention recently and uh it all kind of comes down to ultimately this report written by an fbi agent nicole robertson and there's obviously been a lot of discussion about ron logan himself but i think one thing that we've spoken about is Nicole Robertson's involvement in this case and what that possibly speaks to, I guess. Could we we get your thoughts on that?
2: Yes, um, Nicole Robertson is an FBI agent that at the time uh, was out of Chicago. So she's not from Indianapolis. She's not from Lafayette, uh, certainly not from Delphi. So Chicago's a little bit away. So why was she the agent writing just probable cause affidavit? It turns out that, to uh, the best of my information, Nicole Robertson specialized in sex trafficking of minors. And if you think about the tips that had come in about Ron Logan and the information that law enforcement was acting upon, such as the false alibi, people saying that he resembled the uh, the man on the bridge, his proximity to the crime in his residence, that none of that would, you would think, would bring in Nicole Robertson from Chicago to, to research this.
0: Yeah, yeah, very well said. I think that the the inclusion of somebody who essentially seems like a specialist in a certain topic indicates that authorities at some point very early on in the investigation felt very strongly that the clues and the evidence was pointing in a specific direction.
2: Is that how you see it, Tony? Yes. And I think that the reason that Nicole Robertson is on the case researching Ron Logan is because of what happened a month previous in the Klein raid. So the timeline is important here, in my opinion, they raid the clines what a week 10 days after the murders and they find all types of child solicitation and pornography on multiple devices so to me they're looking for a connection to that when they're going into search Ron Logan's property
0: so that's really interesting. And, and I, I wonder, and of course, we're speculating here, right? We, this is not, none of this conversation or this portion of the conversation is not based on what a source told us. It's, it's all of us putting together the known facts and coming up with plausible explanations. One thing that stands out to me, though, is the possibility that Nicole Robertson, the FBI, the ISP, is possibly looking for a connection actually between Logan and the Kleins by dint of them looking for these uh items that speak to a possible ring of child predators essentially
2: yes i think that's totally the case and more specifically in the probable cause affidavit there's a laundry list of computer and photographic type devices that they're looking for and that stuff again makes more sense being somehow connected to what they found in Peru at the Klein residence, then it necessarily would be from things they found at the scene of the crime and were linking to a 77-year-old man.
0: Right. What do you make of the fact that seemingly police have not or did not find anything when they did indeed raid Ron Logan's house in March of 2017 and I say that because he was never arrested he was never charged with the crime he was never even named as a person of interest or a suspect by police so it feels like on some level the outward indicators are that you know Logan ended up not being linked to it. Uh, What are your thoughts though?
2: Yes I I would agree with that. I don't I think it says that he didn't do it I think that it's speak strongly that uh, he was suspicioned, or maybe they were suspicious that he was again in contact with someone who used his property to commit the crime, and they were trying to find some type of digital footprint, DNA, some traces of that person in that Logan property.
0: You've been looking into this case for for longer than we have. And one thing that I wanted to get your take on is, you know, a lot of people have said, well, Ron Logan looks like the person on the bridge. Do you think that there is an over-reliance on the sketches or the um, image of the man crossing the bridge uh, when it comes to the public discourse around Delphi? Uh, Because it feels like people very much get hung up on those things pretty frequently, in my opinion, at least.
2: Well, people are going to vary widely about the images of the man on the bridge. Um, people say it looks like a hat, and people say it looks like hair, and I did not get the hair. <laughs> um, I've never understood why people thought it looked like that, but um, I think you get a, a lot of uh, you know disagreement about it, and it's obvious, obviously not a clear image. As far as the sketches go, we don't even know why there are two sketches and we've seen people feel like both of those sketches resemble all kinds of different looking and appearing people. So how much the sketch uh, is actually helping at this point? uh, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it is.
1: Uh, To jump forward a bit. Uh, we released uh, back in March, the transcript of the police interrogation of Kagan Klein. And a number of people have pointed out that it seems pretty clear that there's a, Kagan is not entirely truthful in that interrogation. that he told a number of lies. Did, did you have any insights or thoughts about that?
2: Yes, I, I think that, you know, Kagan Klein really implicates himself as having some knowledge of the crime because of the numerous lies that he tells someone who did not have anything to hide would have no reason to get caught up in uh, all the confabulations that he does in that transcript.
1: What do you think his reason to lie might've been?
2: I think he's protecting someone and he's protecting that person because he himself is is possibly implicated.
1: It's very interesting. Another thing that's mentioned in that interrogation is they point out some of the things that uh, Kagan had been doing research on online and Googling things. Was there anything about that that caught your attention?
2: I think that some of the questions about how long does DNA last, uh, looking uh, for information about Abby and Libby it was clear that he was wanting to see what the media and law enforcement were saying about the crime. At one point, I would say that I believe the total number of times that he's he plays back the Down the Hill recording when it's first released is like six times. I don't think that's a a big, excessive number. I remember the first time I heard it, I couldn't understand what was being said. So I can see somebody playing it back six times just out of curiosity um, or trying to hear it better.
0: That could be a concerned citizen who's trying to commit the voice to memory to, you know, see if they ever hear it again, that they'll be able to recognize it. Absolutely. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I I agree that some of the Kagan Klein's internet searches could have been somebody who was just interested in the case. Although that theory kind of gets blown out of the water a little bit, given that he's then in the same interview asserting, you know, "I, I, I had no idea about this. I had no interest in the case. He seemed to research it pretty extensively for somebody who claimed not to be super aware of it. I would agree. And that's the kind of weird thing about the and klein interview is that he's, he's, he's kind of, um, he's lying when he's obviously caught dead to rights. You feel like it would have been simpler to perhaps just say, yeah, I was interested in it. So was everybody.
2: Or because he knows that he talked to her the day, the day of the murders, he could simply just say, you know, I had talked to her that day and I was really nervous about this.
0: Right. It's, he strikes me as the kind of person who is lying a lot without necessarily being particularly good at it. A good liar tends to pick their battles. He seems like a person who is perhaps just not challenged a lot on his obvious lies in life and then, you know, kind of just went with that strategy going forward.
1: A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be.
0: For so many of us, lifestyle changes, like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises, are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin, or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program.
1: Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market their real body program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle health status and goals in addition to the weekly shot you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse that can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20 percent of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off.
0: Go to row.co slash msheet. That's ro.co dot slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle.
2: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: So I was thinking we could... Oh, yeah, go ahead, please.
2: One thing I wanted to say uh, about Ron Logan in his defense is that from what we know about this crime, a lot of planning went into it in terms of the killer had what he needed, to accomplish what he did. He evidently had knowledge of cleaning up the crime scene and it's even stated in the probable cause affidavit that they were looking for information on electronic devices where the individual had searched for how to destroy a a crime scene. So that's very meticulous. So if a guy is going to do this and not have a good alibi, that doesn't make any sense. And what Ron Logan comes up with for alibi is, is ridiculous and gets him into even more trouble. You would think if you were planning this crime to the extent that it was planned, you would have an alibi. A pretty good plan for
0: one. Yes, and that the call with his relative who drove him to the aquarium store in Lafayette, that that call would be happening prior to the crime, almost, you know, if it was going to be planned, and not the day of, when you're scrambling, essentially. It looks like more of a man panicking to me than somebody who is calculating enough to pull this off. I agree. What did you make about all the... Kind of confusion around, you know, he's he's going to the dump earlier, and and then later on he's also driving, but he's only making the alibi for that and not the the morning driving session.
2: My guess would be that he probably had some provisions that he could go to the doctor, to the transfer station, uh, things like that, um, and that that would that would not have been what was going to get him in
0: trouble. Uh, his initial alibi that afternoon didn't even include the time of the mer- of the abduction, essentially, because from the video, we can understand that they were abducted, uh, say, about around a little after 10 past two. Yeah. Right. I, I think, I think that I may have gotten that from you initially, Tony, I think, or, or I think maybe Kevin Thought of that. And it really kind of made me think about the affidavit differently because I was like, if you were going to give an alibi, why aren't you covering 2 p.m. at the very, you know, latest? Instead, he's covering 3 p.m. onward. I think he later amended that to 2 30 p.m., but still, it's kind of like you would think somebody who is really trying to conceal their role in the abduction would, you know, just go for broke and perhaps. Say 1 p.m. onward or whatnot, but he he didn't seem to be able to do that, and and to me that that sloppiness kind of goes with what you're saying about why was his alibi so bad? Correct. I think for Kevin and I, at least, um, the Logan affidavit and search warrant were more interesting in. What they tell us about what the investigators were looking for, because that gives us an idea of what the crime looked like, essentially, because investigators is a month after the murders. They're they're running this down. They're looking for specific things. And some of that was some of the uh, technological devices that they're looking for. But another thing that I think stood out to all of us in, in this report is, you know, things like forensic evidence. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that or anything around the forensic evidence that they were looking for that really stood out to you
2: Well, I think the the clothing items that were missing speak to the depravity of the crime that this was almost certainly a crime driven uh, at least in part as a, of sexual nature or was an attempt to make it look like that was the motive of the
1: crime. There's also a a reference in the uh, affidavit to uh, guns. What did
2: you make of that? I believe a gun was used in the crime in some way. Whether they found a ballistic, whether a gun was used as a blunt force instrument, I think it was used in some way other than just in an attempt to control them because what evidence would there be at the crime scene that would make you look for a gun or a specific gun.
0: Yeah, it's like if if you could if we could speculate for a second if if the man was audibly saying I have a gun or the girls were talking about the gun in the recording that Libby took, you know, that wouldn't identify anything they would just they wouldn't be able to look for anything specifically in their search. So it really does make you wonder about how that might have manifested itself or what clues they were going off of, essentially.
2: Well, I guess, though, let's suppose that they they do hear, they say the click of a revolver in, in the audio, or he says, you know, I've got a gun. I guess it's possible that he would have got their blood on the gun, even if he didn't use it.
0: Right, so kind of maybe more of a forensic wrap-up as opposed to we have bullets, essentially.
2: Sure.
1: over the years since this crime happened there's really been uh, a very vigorous online community that has uh, developed around this case and you've been a part of it I just wonder if you had any comments or insights about that community
2: well I I believe that you know some of the uh, online communities are better than, than others and I think that they're There is a lot of bogus information uh, introduced in many of these communities, these Facebook groups and things like that. Um, But I think there has been some legitimate research done um, in these groups as well.
1: I'm curious, what advice would you give to people listening as to how to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to the online community and the information they share?
2: I would start by taking notes, keeping track of the things you're seeing that seem to make sense, Um, because you can very quickly accumulate uh, folders on your computer that have all kinds of different things in it, or you may feel the need to go back and look at something or read something, and you just don't have it or you can't find it. So um, I, I would say, you know, to keep track of uh, things that, that you find interesting. Uh, and, and I think you'll see which people are more genuine um, about their, their opinions and, uh, and their research in these types of groups and on YouTube and social media. And then you'll see people that, you know, obviously uh, believe just about anything.
1: This case seems to have attracted the attention of people literally all over the world. What do you suppose it is about this case that has touched the hearts of so many?
2: I think I would just go back to what I said earlier about the archetypal quality of the story. It's almost like a Grimm Brothers fairy tale. And when I say archetypal, this is a term out of Jungian psychology. Um, which refers to how certain motifs appear across different cultures and their similar stories. And it just sort of, the big stories stick, you know, around for centuries. And this whole image of this crime, if you look at, you know, two young women going out into the wilderness, crossing a bridge, this boogeyman, you know, that confronts them, uh, you know, the, that imagery, you know, it, it's not just here because it's in Indiana. It is it is worldwide. I was really surprised when Carter mentioned that he gets tips on a weekly basis from around the world.
0: You mentioned us, ISP Superintendent Doug Carter. And, you know, obviously the three of us are working from the outside of this investigation. We're not law enforcement So we're not privy to a lot of those decisions and whatnot that they're making. Um, Kevin and I have been critical about some of the communication strategies that we feel that ISP in particular has employed around this case. We feel like it's kind of created an informational vacuum where speculation abounds. But I guess I would love to get your take because you've you've been with this case for longer than we have. What's been your perception over time about how police are doing and, you know, have, have any of the recent revelations about the, the Logan documents or the Klein documents you know, changed the way you think about it?
2: Well, I would totally agree that there is not enough information fluidly coming out of ISP about this case. There have been there have been lots of questions uh, about things that have been stated from law enforcement that are just not even clarified.
0: Yeah, I I definitely don't understand that in particular because it feels like that can really create uncertainty. Why do
1: you suppose they don't clarify those things?
2: I don't know why they don't clarify these things. I would think just a simple press secretary could do something like that. I understand that their philosophy is very rigid about keeping their cards close to the vest. But I think after such a great period of time, you have to consider changing strategy. And they've done that a little bit. But could more information be released? I'm a believer in that.
0: We are, too. And I think after five years, I think it's reasonable for other entities in the media or whatnot to focus on police response to this crime. And, you know, there needs to be perhaps some oversight of how they're doing and I feel like a lot of their messaging almost tends to be like, we'll tell you all about this eventually. With a case that's five years old, I think it's reasonable to say, well, when is that coming exactly? Asking some of those tough questions about like, is this on track to be solved? And if not, then what's happened? I would agree. So just backtracking a little bit, I want to go back to the Logan document. One thing that really stood out to us, Tony, was just the fact that, Uh, It mentions cellular signals that were detected by law enforcement that seemingly, at least as of March 2017, they hadn't been able to track down. And I guess for you, what sort of picture does that paint of the crime?
2: The question I have is how many devices were in that area of the crime that they never were able to identify in the. Robert Ives interviews, he's talked about that they were unable to glean any data from the devices that were in that area. And it seems like he's saying multiple. And I think if there is one device, one phone, then that tells us something. And if there's two or three or four, that also tells us something.
0: I have to add that I think that the fact that they haven't been able to track down those phones could tell us something in that if somebody was employing burner a burner phone or burner phones in this crime, that to me speaks to a level of planning that I think is important to note because that sort of changes how this looks to me. Like it's not some sort of con- confrontation gone wrong. It's, it's becoming much more like people or one person went there to do something specifically.
2: Yeah, I, I would interpret
1: it that way. What are some of the biggest misconceptions you believe people have about this case?
2: There have been uh, numerous uh, syndicated shows talking about Ron Logan since Murder Sheet released the Ron Logan documents. And I think that many of these newscasters and journalists have maybe focused too much on Ron Logan, who aren't really familiar with the case and haven't really followed it. So I think that's one mistake that the people are making. Another, I think the idea that the bodies were moved is a misconception in terms of moved any great distance. A lot of people have believed that they were moved because searchers had gone through that area on the 13th. And I just think there's a lot of reasons why the searchers might have missed them you know on the 13th it could have been that it was dark it could have been they were looking for living girls it could have been the gulchiness of the of the land hiding hiding them it would have been very difficult for someone to come back in the middle of the night and enter an area with a huge police presence and a massive search underway for these girls and to return their bodies
0: i agree on both counts Going back to the first, as a journalist, I think there can sometimes be an unconscious bias in the media to go for the easiest narrative. And when you have images of a very blurry person on the bridge that look somewhat, in fairness, like Ron Logan, I think there's a rush to say, well, that's the easy solution as opposed to you know ask harder questions because you're you're dealing with time and space and a rush to get the news out and i think then you know that can prompt certain narratives to form when perhaps uh, a more a more judicious approach is necessary to a case like this and it seems important to point out that Ron Logan has not been tied to a social media account that was in contact with one of the victims right before her murder. That was that being the Anthony Schatz account, that being the Klein household, Kegan Klein and his father, Tony Klein. That's the house where that's coming out of. So we always try to stress that people should focus on the timeline and what was happening in 2020 versus what was happening in 2017, things start to look a little bit more clear and that the focus remains on the clines.
2: I would agree.
1: I'm curious. We talked about misconceptions. that get too much attention. Are there details out there that you think don't get as much attention as they deserve to get that people are just overlooking?
2: I think what we have now between the Logan's search documents and the transcripts with keegan klein we see a a common theme here that they were looking in 2017 for a connection to some type of pornography or child sex trafficking of some nature and that being behind some aspect of this crime
1: i'm curious what do you think uh would be needed to bring this case to a resolution
2: it seems that outside of a confession or a direct tip from someone who knows the killer that the evidence is lacking at this point. Well, one idea would be that there could be advances in technology that would allow law enforcement to reanalyze the social media platforms that Abby and Libby were on in 2017. I find it very interesting that in 2017, they they searched the, the home of Kaden Klein and find all this information. But it's not until 2021 where the discussion goes public about the Anthony Schatz account. It seems that there was some change in technology that allowed them to find this information.
0: Yeah, I think we're, we're hopeful about something like that, too. Or, you know, I, I think, but it also kind of... To circle back to something we were talking about earlier, it sort of really poses the question of why some of this information wasn't released earlier, because five years is a long time, especially if there's possible, you know, people who are on some of these platforms interacting with Anthony shots might have been better for them to perhaps be alerted to the possibility that that account was a suspect earlier on, so they could you know, realize that and immediately go to police while this was fresh in their minds.
2: It's a great point. We don't really know when they actually found the connection between Anthony Schatz and Liberty German.
1: We wanted to thank Tony Garner for sharing his time and insights with us. We very much appreciate it.
0: And as always, if you have information on this case, email Abby and Libby tip at or call the tip line, which is 765 822 3535. And if you have information about the clients that you want to pass on to us, email Murdersheet at gmail.com. We protect our sources. To our surprise, We've gotten a number of requests from people saying they would like a way to help financially support our efforts with the show. So, if you are interested, we are relaunching a Patreon page, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash murder sheet. Join us there for two live video question and answer sessions each month. You can ask us anything, suggest new cases for us to look at, or even offer ideas for new leads for us to follow. If Patreon is not your thing, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. Thanks for the interest.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Murder Sheet. As always, thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenly, who composed the music for The Murder Sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. To
0: keep up with the latest on The Murder Sheet, please make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Murder Sheet and on Facebook at MSheetPodcast or by searching Murder Sheet. If you enjoy listening to The Murder Sheet, please leave us a five-star review to help us gain more exposure and send tips, suggestions, and feedback to murdersheet at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.